Welcome to Fighting for the Underdog, the podcast that follows the tales of compassion and bravery of animal rights activists all over the world. As I interviewed these amazing people, I was truly inspired by the common theme of hope that they give to underdogs everywhere. They taught me that sometimes the greatest power an underdog possesses is never giving up hope. Hello and welcome. Today we have Angela Eaton from Canine Partners of the Rockies here in Colorado. Uh, Canine Partners of the Rockies is a 501c3 nonprofit that is an accredited service dog organization with Assistance Dogs International. Their mission is to enable Coloradans with disabilities to lead more independent and gratifying lives through training and partnering them with highly skilled service dogs. Thanks, Angela, for being on today. I appreciate it. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Great. Happy to have you. So let's dive right in. Uh, so I gave a little bit of an explanation about Canine Partners of the Rockies, but what is your organization and what does it do? We, as you said, we are an accredited service dog school accredited through Assistance Dogs International. And that is an organization that's basically, we're all peers within the organization and we monitor each other and we um, are have established standards for Um, raising and training and placing service dogs with clients um, following ethical practices. And um, it's wonderful because we can collaborate with each other as well as service dogs, uh, school directors and trainers. Our school in particular um, places dogs only in Colorado so that we can provide lifetime support. So for the lifetime of the dog, we go, we will help our clients if anything changes within their lives which often happens of course new jobs new schools new home even something like a new van or their disability changes and affects their ability to move around originally we place dogs only for mobility limiting conditions like spinal cord injuries majority of our clients have spinal cord injuries or multiple sclerosis but we've also branched out into autism support dogs, mostly for children, families with children on the spectrum. But we also are getting applications from adults who were um, diagnosed to be on the spectrum and need some support as well. We also place intervention dogs, facil- they're called facility dogs, facility intervention dogs, um, and they have trained skills to intervene as opposed to a therapy dog, which is certainly very valuable, but is therapy dogs aren't required to have trained behaviors that mitigate disabilities. So our intervention dogs will mitigate, they're placed with professionals who work with people with disabilities, often clinical social workers, psychologists, special ed teachers. Those dogs in specifically are specifically trained mostly for um, psychiatric, multiple and severe trauma for the, in this case, children. So we also um, have branched out into psychiatric service dogs for specific diagnoses. Wow. So you guys, it sounds like you guys do a lot then. (laughs) We do a lot with very little. Sure, sure. So I want to go back a little bit to what you said about you're getting applications from adults. So what do you mean by applications? Where are these applications coming from? And what's kind of the process behind that? Yeah, it's, we revised it in the last five years to make it more kind of user-friendly and upfront. So somebody might have a recommendation from a doctor or a, a friend even, or they get on the internet and they search for service dogs and our name comes up. And because we're accredited, the VA hospital will recommend us as well. So they get a little bit of information and they, and they seek us out. And when they, they either call or they send us an email and then we respond to them immediately, just saying we'll be in touch. And then we set up a phone interview really to answer questions at that point, because many people don't know what a service dog does specifically. They don't know what skills that they, what skills they would use to mitigate their disability. So we answer questions And we ask questions too, to know if it would be an appropriate 
fit because if we can't help them, if we don't feel like we can help them with one of our dogs, we refer them on to Assistance Dogs International or another organization if we know that they specifically specialize in what their needs are. We don't place dogs for medical alert. And so we would refer them on. And then that starts the chain of process where after the phone interview, we invite them to class and then we do a home visit. We do a more in-depth interview and we want everyone in the family there. So we can really start to get to know them as a human and what their needs are and what their environment is. And then every step of the way, we're looking to we're talking about what their abilities are to really manage a, a service dog because not everybody can handle a dog. And even though our dogs are really well-trained, we want them to be exercised well. We want them to get great health care and food and bond closely with their partner. And in some cases, some disabilities don't allow that. One-on-one, um, you know, some people will have their spouse take care of the dog and then the dog is going to start working for the spouse, not the individual that they need to bond with. So we're looking for things like that and answering questions all along the way because we really want to put the candidate in the position of making good decisions moving forward. And then if we accept them as an applicant, we invite them to apply and we send them a packet. They fill out quite a bit of information. They have to have a prescription from their healthcare provider and we ask the healthcare provider to fill out a form so that they don't just say, yes, this person needs a service dog. They actually are answering questions about, about the disabilities. Then we put them in our pool and we select. So we always say we don't have a wait list. We have people waiting for service dogs, but we match the dog with the person and the person with the dog. So it's not like if you're number one on the list, you get the next dog that's finished training. We go through a whole matching process and we watch the dog and ask the dog if this person is right for them and the person as well. So we go through protocols. It's been very effective. And I have been surprised where I really thought a person would gel with one dog and the dog says, I got nothing. I don't, I'm not, this person is not doing it for me. And so we really work hard to find the right dog for the right person and vice versa, including lifestyle, of course. And once we go through the match, then the next step is either training specific skills for that person. If, it's, if they have an unusual circumstance, if the dog has enough skills, then we um, have a team training, which is people like to refer to it as a boot camp. I don't, but it is an intensive training. It's two and a half weeks, basically eight hour days with breaks, which is hard for people with disabilities. It's hard for me. I'm tired at the end of it as well. <laughs> and because it is an intensive, we're starting to develop the relationship, but that's only the very beginning for the dog and the person to begin to develop that relationship, which is all important. So let me try to unpack a lot of that there. One thing I did want to go back to before I get to my next question, based on what you just said, I'm curious about the process that you guys use to match a dog with a person. But I also want to talk about the issue of accreditation and the issue of service animals and what is a service animal. I know that there's a lot of confusion out there right now between What's an emotional support animal? What's a service animal? What's a therapy dog? What are the rights that each person has with each one? There's just a lot of blurred lines out there. So I was wondering if you could help shed some light on that. I know you mentioned your accreditation is a peer reviewed, but there are a lot of organizations out there that are not accredited. What does accreditation do for an organization? One thing that it does is validate that we do what we say we do and we write it down in policies and procedures, and we follow our, follow our policies and procedures. We have bylaws. Um, we are practicing ethically in working with people and animals. And we have this tremendous network of organizations of service and guide dogs. And guide dog schools have been around since after World War One. So they have, obviously the people aren't still running <laughs> running the same schools, but they have a long history of knowledge and understanding 
of pairing dogs as partners with people with disabilities. And so it, it gets us into that network, that valuable network of people with a lot of experience as well. Our last, re, we are re-accredited every five years and our, we just finished our five-year re-accreditation this past uh, 2019. So we've been re-accredited twice after our original accreditation. We get feedback and sometimes it can be dramatic. The, the person who is one of the leaders in Assistance Dogs International who came to do our, our on-site evaluation, as well as another person with Southeastern Guide Dogs. And the Sheila O'Brien, who did our, she was a lead evaluator, worked with hearing dogs in the early days of hearing dogs in this country. And she's with the Guide Dog Foundation and American Vet Dogs. So a lot of history, a lot of knowledge. And we passed with flying colors, which is wonderful. But they give feedback too. And they and one of her recommendations is that we use our knowledge of dogs mitigating people with psych, psychological disabilities and also some opening some training in a prison program, which we don't do right now. So we started exploring that and she has been a mentor for that process as well. So it's a a good partnership in addition to the fact that they are putting their stamp on us saying that we are valid, that we are going to be around. We provide excellent help for our partners um, when they need it because often animal and human partnerships, generally the animal is not the one that's confused and they just aren't very dramatic about changes. Humans are. And so that's, we do a lot. We do psychological counseling. We do, we, we provide a lot of different dimensions of support for our clients as well as our dogs. And is that through partnerships? When you say psychological counseling, is that through par- partnerships with certain psychologists that you guys have? Or how, what do you mean you provide psychological counseling? It gets hard when you're training a dog. So we aren't practitioners. We're, we're not healthcare practitioners, although um, we may call in assistance from somebody within our community who is a healthcare, I mean, a, like a social worker to ask advice but we haven't really needed to do that at this point. So psychological counseling would be, you can do this. You can, oh. you can get through this. And also I'm pretty strict about the welfare of the dog because I'm making a decision that's gonna affect that dog's life. And I, that weighs heavily on me. And so if a person feels like it's too hard and they can't do it, I respect that but I also want to support them and be honest with them that yes, if I feel they can do it, then I will say you can do it, but it's up to you, but you have to get out of the car. You have to, you have to show up Mm. every day for training and you have to use our, you know, you have to follow our guidelines and our um, like use the dog's cues that the dog knows rather than start making up your own because we have, our dogs know a lot of behaviors and a lot of cues. So it's important to use their language because the dogs are adjusting too, very much so, to a new lifestyle. And so to go back to this question of, and I know you touched on what a therapy dog is, that that's primarily a dog that assists a mental health professional. So what is a service dog? can I take a service dog into a restaurant if I have, you know, a disability? Can I take, can I take my dog into my apartment and not have to pay pet rent? What do you, what can you tell our listeners about what their rights are with a service dog, what the service dog's rights are? And, and that's, that's a great question because there's so much confusion around that. A service dog as defined by the Americans with Disability Act is or service animal is an animal that has multiple trained skills that mitigate a person's disability on a daily basis. So retrieving items, specific items, 
opening, closing doors, turning lights on and off. I mean, our dogs do so much. It's for psych service dogs, they'd be waking them up in, in the middle of a nightmare. So these, these dogs, service dogs, or assistance dogs incorporates, when you hear assistance dogs, they incorporate guide dogs, hearing dogs, all types of service dogs, as well as facility dogs. So when we talk about a service dog, we're, we're not talking about a guide dog. We're talking about a dog that may provide medical support in, in um, you know, mitigating a disability, like alerting to a medical condition or going out and getting help. Our autism support dogs act as, often act as anchors for children so they don't run away. They don't elope. It's called eloping. A service dog is not, doesn't have privileges or rights. It's a person with a disability that has the rights. And so they can go into public places with their dogs, just like they can with their wheelchair. And so that's how it appears as if the dog's protected. The dog is not protected. The person's protected because, because the dog's providing critical assistance for that person out in the world. An emotional support animal is one that is, provides emotional support because of who it is. It's not required to have trained skills. It's not required to even be trained. It's just, it's like, I think of my cats sitting on my lap and how calming that is for me, but the cats haven't been trained to do that. They just mm -hmm. do that. The emotional support animal does need paperwork from a healthcare provider saying that they need that emotional support animal in order to be covered by the Fair Housing Act. What, what is a facility animal? I've never heard that term before. The, the, I'm, I'm sorry, I use that term. It's the facility okay. intervention that I was talking about. So it could be a courthouse dog. I'm going to move so I can let my dog in. Yeah. Sure. She's yelling at me. <laughs> sorry. No worries. So a facility animal, a facility dog in this case, is one that has the trained skills does have trained skills, but it's paired with a professional or a facility. So we placed a dog with Rocky Mountain Autism, for example, with the psychologist who was a director. And the dog went home with them, but worked with multiple clients. Oh, okay. And courthouse dog provides support for people, sometimes often children, but adults too, facing their perpetrator or providing testimony. And that dog is trained. It, it doesn't just show up one day. It is trained for that specific situation so that it can sit through a trial. And that's fairly recent, the courthouse dogs. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never seen that. But I mean, I also don't, <laughs> I don't do any cases where there's a child victim. But um, so yeah, do you, have you guys partnered with any particular courthouses for this yet? We were called by, I think she was a social worker, but I'm not sure anyway, with CASA in Boulder County. And she was exploring that. Uh, one of our facility dogs who's in Aspen with a therapist in Aspen who works with children who've been traumatized. Two of, two of the kids, twins, that were her clients for a couple years had to appear in court and face their perpetrator. And that was in Clear Creek. And so the dog that supported her dog that we partnered with her, Obi, in Aspen, I, I worked with her to acclimate him to the courthouse in Georgetown. So these boys could face their perpetrator and feel calm. It was not a juried trial. That's where, that's where it gets a little I think judges like to be careful about that because they don't want the jury watching the dog and feeling empathy for the person testifying because there's a dog with them. Sure. And I think that's very interesting that, yes, I'm going to vote for the dog, <laughs> but um, it was not a jury trial. And the two boys had testified for hours and they were facing their perpetrator who was a family member in court. And, she said that it went really, really well. And they took breaks and they sat on the floor with Obi and he was, he was under, he was next to them in the chair as they were testifying. But then they needed to take a break and they would just get out of the chair and sit with Obi so they could keep going. That's fascinating. I like, 
I've never heard of that. To go back to my questions, my original set of questions now, how did you guys come up with the name Canine Partners of the Rockies? I'm not a founder. I joined the organization. This is starting my eighth year. There were four people who had raised puppies for another organization in California, and they never found out what happened with those puppies when they went on to advanced training back to California. So they never could find out how they did or whether they made it or what happened. And they, you know, that's very ungratifying because you've put your heart and soul into making sure this puppy is raised well so it can go on and provide support for somebody. So they decided to start and none of the, but they did know that none of the puppies ended up being placed in Colorado with people with disabilities and Colorado Front Range has a very large disability community because the state provides so many services. There are so many services in the Denver Front Range for people with disabilities. So they decided to create an organization that only placed dogs in Colorado that provided lifetime, a full life cycle of understanding of raising the dog, training the dog, um, placing the dog, and then even in retirement, knowing what what happens with the dog. And so I guess that's why they came up with Canine Partners of the Rockies because of Rocky Mountains. And they were all over the state too. They weren't just in Denver. And you mentioned retirement. Were you talking about the dogs or the people? The dogs. So when the dog retires, sometimes people with disabilities, especially if they're on a fixed income, can't, and they're ready for another service dog, they can't keep two dogs. And so when the dog retires, is ready to retire, if they can't keep the dog in retirement, we help them find a home for the dog. And first choice would be to go back to the puppy raiser and see if they want the dog now that he or she's retired. The, The truth is that people with service dogs have a long line of people waiting for that dog if they can't keep the dog in retirement because of the, their own community, people who know them and know the dog. And how long is a, is a service dog's working cycle? We like the dog to be working at least 10 years. They certainly do start to slow down uh, just like we do after working for so many years. I saw one of our clients Wednesday that I haven't seen for a couple of years. We've been been in touch, but I haven't actually seen her for a couple of years. And her dog is 12 years old and she's still working. And she's a teacher and a basketball coach. She's paralyzed. You know, she's not ready for Rowena, the dog, to retire yet. And she has a family. She said that she slowed down a bit, but She still provides the services that she needs for her, and she's not ready for another service dog because she doesn't want Rowena to be upset about bringing another dog in the house. Oh, about that. So, what's one thing you wish you had known when you started working with Canine Partners of the Rockies? I wish I had known how how much work was involved in running an organization like this, and it's constantly. Our mission doesn't change, and what we do is quite stable. However, when I joined the organization, it was fairly fairly small. They were only placing two dogs a year, and the dogs were being sent out to contract trainers to train, and as a trainer myself, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm very careful about the experience of our dogs in training and learning, and I want it to be positive, and I want it to be enriching. And so I brought all the training in-house, and we're placing more dogs. We're placing about six dogs a year, six or seven dogs a year. And I brought all the training in-house. So our program has grown quite a bit, but our staff hasn't. Mm -hmm. So we really need to add more staff and um, to, to manage the expansion of the program. And it's a lot of work. I thought it would be a fun I I retired from University of Colorado in Boulder after 20 years, and I thought this would be a nice retirement type of job because I am a trainer with a behavior background, and I'm working harder than I've ever worked. (laughs) So as you know, I'm an attorney, and so I have to ask some, some legal questions, of course. 
Do you have, have you, your organization or any of your clients ever had any legal issues surrounding the service dog question or just their status as a service dog? They often have. They often have been challenged. If they want to, one of our clients wanted to book a room up in, um, you know, in the mountains, I think it was Lake County and uh, just a fishing lodge. And they said he couldn't bring his dog. And I always ask our clients to let us know so we can send them a letter. We can educate them because business people just don't know for the most part. But we've also had some of our dogs attacked by other dogs who are, quote, fake service dogs. I mean, Mm -hmm. I call them fake because a a certified service dog should not attack another dog. And it's happened more than once in um, public places. So, you know, just being challenged about whether they really need a service dog, because so many of our clients are in wheelchairs, it usually is pretty apparent what the dog does for them, as opposed to somebody who the disability is invisible. Mm-hmm. That can be challenging. Uh, one, of our, one of our clients is a professor at CU in Boulder, and talking to him, you wouldn't know that he has a disability. And so I had to talk to CU Boulder about the dog and the dog's training. And I gave them a lot more information than they really needed to have. But I'm I'm happy to do it if it helps our client and it educates them. I'm glad that you brought that up about the information and you gave them more than what they needed to have. So, I mean, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, I know that there's certain questions that people are allowed, that businesses or third parties are allowed to ask the person with a disability. In your experience, what does the ADA typically allow for when someone's asking for information related to a service dog? So there are two questions that people can ask. I'm My dog is finishing her breakfast, so that's the clanking that you're hearing. I'm sorry. (laughs) The two questions you can ask is, that a service dog? And if a person says yes, if the person says no, then the business owner can say, well, we don't allow pet dogs in in the facility. But anybody can ask that question. I could go up to a stranger and ask that question. Is that a service dog? The second question is, what what tasks or what, yes, how does this dog mitigate your disability? In other words, what tasks does that dog do for you? Often people will, I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say, yes, it's a service dog. It's an emotional service dog. And mm-hmm. I'd kill myself if I didn't have the dog with me. That's not answering that question. An emotional mm-hmm. support dog is not a service dog. And the fact that, that you're suicidal does is not a task that this dog actually has a trained skill to mitigate. You know, there's no discussion that dogs do alleviate stress it, as far as discussions with me. I'm not, I have no doubt about that and, and make it easier. But the key issue is whether the dog has trained skills, multiple trained skills to mitigate the disability. And, and often when people you know, it, it's, you're not required to be certified with a service dog. We, of course, we certify our teams. That means that person and that dog are certified as a, as a service dog team. We give them ID cards. You're not required to show an ID card. You're, the dog is not required to wear a vest. We provide all of that. We require our, our, our clients to put the dog's vest on in public. We want our name out there so that if people have any questions, they can contact us or for whatever reason, contact us. And we do recommend that they show an ID card just because it helps validate their situation with a service dog, even though they're not required to do that. I have one client who's in Summit County who was in a, I guess I can say Panera Bread, and a woman came in. The door she was at the checkout counter and she had a cane she has rheumatoid arthritis so you know it was it was relatively clear that she has a disability because she was walking with the cane and the dog was next to her and a woman came in the door and 
got all excited about the dog in front of her and started calling the dog to her. Mm. And I was furious about that because that's like walking up to somebody and taking their cane away because now she had to manage this friendly dog who was being called to this woman. He didn't go to her, but she had to manage a situation which she shouldn't have to manage. She could have been arrested for that, for doing that, removing her support from her trying to remove her support from her. I'm sure the woman didn't think of it like that. It was just like, oh my God, what a cute dog. But that's why we like them to wear vests that say, don't distract, don't pet, because the dog is providing a function, even if it doesn't look like the dog is doing anything. I've heard service dogs analogized to, like you said, canes or wheelchairs, that they're essentially a medical device for people with disabilities. Yes, they are considered a medical device. And that's interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the issue of cards, IDs, and vests, because I get a lot of questions or I, well, I get a lot of clients who come to me because they were discriminated against in a public place because they weren't able to provide an ID card or the dog wasn't wearing a vest. And there's just a lot of ignorance, it seems like around service animals and what is and isn't required. But I think it is a good practice to just have that because there is so much ignorance around it. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And we're back. I want to touch base on what you said about, you know, that woman could have been arrested for calling the dog over to her. I know the answer to this question, but (laughs) our listeners probably don't. Why could she have been arrested for that? Because she's separating the woman from her medical device. Basically, it's like running away with her cane or her wheelchair. I mean, that's that's my assumption, because I'm not a lawyer, that it would be like going up to somebody and taking their walker away from them or their cane. Sure. Well, I was wondering if you were talking about the Colorado... There's a Colorado corollary to the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's called the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Is that what you were referring to when you were talking about her potential? Yeah, I didn't know that's what it was called, but I was talking about that type of thing. So yes, discriminating against her, making her life harder as a result of some action that she took because of the disability. No, absolutely. And I think I think it's important too, because the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act provides a little bit more protection than the Americans with Disabilities Act. Not only does it provide criminal penalties for someone who interferes with a service animal and its duties, but it also provides civil penalties as well. And one thing I like about The Colorado version is that it provides a protection for service animals and training. Is that anything you guys have had to deal with or come across? Is that particular in training issue? Yes, definitely. We do, our vests do, we have a different vest for our dogs in training than the Mm -hmm. ones once they're certified. It's just different colors. It's just different configuration. But we also have a patch that says service animal, service dog in training. And in Colorado, there's no distinction. So we've been able to get them into a lot of different, it's great because all of their public access training happens as they're growing up. We don't suddenly bring them into advanced training and have to acclimate them to the airport and light rail. And, you know, not all dogs are made to be service dogs. And so we can raise them in a way that by the time they come into advanced training, they have a long history of getting out in public and being in schools and being in offices. I haven't originally, this was several years ago, getting on light rail um, there was a there were questions about whether it was okay to bring these service dogs in training on light rail. And RTD has a statement, and I just printed out and laminate it. And they had that for guide dogs. And now we could do that with service dogs without any question. I've never been questioned in the last probably three years on light rail or on buses with the service dog in training. Well, and then Colorado passed, I don't know if it's a law or I think it's a law 
where about the fake service dog, which was hugely helpful in validating what we do, basically, that 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 is saying that it's not just something that happens. We don't just go out and have fun playing with our dogs. We do have fun training and our training method is like playing, but because it's fun, but it's serious. And so I've gone into a restaurant with a service dog in training and been asked for the medical prescription that Mm -hmm. says I can have that dog there. And so, you know, I went back home and I went on Colorado Disabilities website and printed out for the business just to let them know. And I talked to them and I, they were confused. They were very confused. So I just printed it out for restaurants, the advice for restaurants. And so they know that nobody has to show them their prescription to eat in a restaurant, but they've had so many people come in with dogs that they call service dogs that sit in the chair and eat off of the plates Oh. And a service dog will never do that. Right. And, and not be, they shouldn't be dropping food for the dog. You know, it should be unobtrusive, completely unobtrusive, which is hard to do when you're a, a Labrador retriever or a golden retriever and not be noticed. Sure. That's really disgusting. That's kind of the most egregious example I've heard. I know that people will bring their dogs in a lot of places they're not supposed to. And most, it seems like most businesses just don't fight it but no they don't you can tell that that dog is not a service animal it's jumping around it's getting in everybody's business i this emotional support animal thing kind of drives me crazy emotional support animals are strictly a housing and airplane issue and actually it's not an airplane issue anymore because you cannot have uh yeah you can't have esas on planes anymore because so many of our service dogs around the country were attacked by other animals on planes Oh, it's very stressful. You know, when I, when I go to a mall or some public place and I see, because you can order a service dog vest online, you can order a quote registration ID card online. There is no national registry for service dogs. That's very important for people to know. There's no national registry. When I see these dogs stressed and upset, it's very upsetting to me because these dogs are not comfortable. They're not happy. They're gonna break down. They're gonna get sick with that kind of stress day in and day out, going to places that they're not comfortable in and doing things they're not comfortable doing. Sure, no, and I'm glad you said that about no national registry. So many people, it is the best scam I have ever come across in my life. And that's all it is, is a scam. I tell people that every time they ask me, oh, where can I go to get get my dog registered? (laughs) Nowhere. Yes. (laughs) It's the biggest scam of your life. I mean, 50 bucks for me to print a piece of paper off my little home printer. It drives me nuts. But everybody buys into it. Even landlords demand to see that certificate now because it's just, it's the best marketing of a scam I've ever seen in my life. Sorry, that makes me so mad. No, that's okay. We get caught all the time, especially with the Department of the FAA, the new guidelines now. Sure. Uh, We get calls from people who say, I need to get my dog certified as a service dog so I can fly on the airplanes. Well, we don't do that. We train our own dogs. Um, We do practice purpose breeding because it's much more successful, higher success rate. Um, But we don't, we just... We're not a, like a one-stop shop where you, you can bring your pet dog in and we'll certify it for you. I'm glad that you're educating people. Hopefully they're listening to you and not just calling the next number in a line, but hopefully, (laughs) but yeah, uh, no. And I know that part of the reason I heard that the FAA changed its guidelines was because there's, so service animals can only, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, service animals can only be dogs, any breed of dog, but dogs or miniature horses. <laughs> I'm not really sure why it's miniature horses, but I know that those are the two animals. But emotional support animals are not limited in the same way. So I have seen pictures of people with parakeets and tur- I saw a turtle one time, ferrets on planes. And it's just like, these animals are not trained to do anything whatsoever. And it's just to have, a, it's literally a wild animal on yeah. a plane. Yeah. It gives snakes on a plane a whole new meaning. Yes, it does. <laughs> 
So you mentioned you have trainers that you work with and you, I'm assuming you have volunteers and other supporters. How hard is it to find trainers and volunteers? Uh, you mentioned earlier that your, your staff rate hasn't increased with your growth. So is it difficult to find people to work in this field? Uh, it's not difficult to find people who want to work in this field, but it's difficult because we're funded by individual donations. We do get grants from generous foundations, and um, but the majority of our funding are from individual donors, mm. is from individual donors. So we cannot compete with private sector as far as pay scale. And that's typical in the animal industry. I mean, even if for zoologists. And there are a lot of people who want to work in the industry, but they don't understand the amount of work that's involved. So I often will get a call from somebody who wants to learn to train service dogs, but they're not a dog trainer. And so, I mean, basically you need to understand behavior, animal husbandry. You need to, to, to train a service dog. You really should be a dog trainer to start with because I, I personally cannot invest time in teaching somebody how to be a dog trainer and then be a service dog trainer because mm-hmm. I need these dogs trained. I have run apprentice programs, but of course that's an apprentice program. So it's less pay. And we do now, you know, people are flocking to Colorado and it's fine if they're coming from California, they understand a high cost of living, but if they're coming from Kentucky or someplace that has a lower cost of living, they don't realize how expensive it is to live here. So, you know, in my love of training and animal behavior, I had a career that fed me. So I had, you know, I had... A long, a long career where I could provide for myself as well as my, we often say, what do you do that allows you to provide for your animals? And that's my other career that's not animal related. So that's what, that's what I chose to do. We're looking right now, we're looking for, we're defining a new position, director of business services mm. and business operations. And I've been doing that along with canine operations and we've grown that I can't do both. And my love is the canine operations. So even though my background is in the other, my background's also in training and that's what I love to do. So breaking that out now in a new position, as well as, you know, as dog trainers, if you're training dogs full time, you need to be able to afford a lower salary than the director of IT, which is what I was at CU in the healthcare center. And I took a 50%, more than a 50% cut in salary to take this position, but I have a pension. You know, you just, you just weigh different things. And we are a small organization. Um, I'm hoping that we will become an endowed organization soon so that we can kind of take a deep breath instead of going from year to year. And of course, 2020 has had an impact on everybody, including us. If you can, what has been the most rewarding part of your work with Canine Partners of the Rockies? There've been a lot, I've had a lot of rewards. Our, Our clients are just fantastic people. Watching them grow with their partnership with their dog has been incredibly rewarding. Watching the dogs blossom into working dogs from squishy little puppies um, has been very, very rewarding. You know, and and it's the relationship really, ultimately. Uh, One of our dogs that was attacked in a mall, his partner was quadriplegic. She is quadriplegic. And her dog was literally on his back with a St. Bernard on top of him. And she said it was the most traumatic thing that had ever happened in her life. And she was in an accident and broke her leg, her neck, Mm -hmm. and she's quadriplegic. But it was more traumatic to her that her dog was attacked than her original accident because she adjusted Mm -hmm. to that. So that kind of relationship with the dog is so fulfilling and that that's very rewarding to me. What's one thing Canine Partners did for a client that you didn't expect to happen? That's a hard question because I, I have... 
I do search and rescue with my own dog. So I know how important that canine human partnership is in a working situation. So I usually have high expectations to begin with, but I'd say the most, the most is getting, getting people with disabilities out in the world instead of staying safe at home you know, where they feel safer, but they're, but they're isolated and they're not productive. I've seen people go out and get a job because now they feel safe. I asked one of our clients who has his second service dog from us, he's in Grand Junction, also quadriplegic. I asked him if he, if he felt his partnership with his new dog was, if he ever felt there was any risk with his new dog, because I want to make sure that the, that the dog and the person are safe and feel safe. And he said, I, I said, do you ever feel at risk by any of this dog's behaviors? And he said, I never feel at risk. In fact, I only feel safe if I'm with this dog. I wouldn't mm-hmm. go out otherwise. So I think that level of security is probably what has surprised me most. And what's the greatest challenge you or canine partners has had to face in your work? And how did you overcome it? Well, I don't think we've overcome it yet. The greatest challenge is always funding. Mm. For a nonprofit our size, because I could definitely hire more people. I could expand even our apprentice trainer program if we had more funding. We need more staff. So it, the, and I'm not a fundraiser. It's not what I love. So that's really been one of the greatest challenges, getting enough trainers in so we can get these dogs trained and on with their working career. And that all comes down to funding. What's one common misunderstanding people have about canine partners or your industry? People have said they don't really understand what service dogs do. Mm. And I think any, in any animal industry, when you're working with animals, this is a kind of an aside, people think that it's really fun. It is really fun, but we're not just playing with the animals. I mean, we're, we're really teaching them and they're teaching us too. Um, so it, so it is work and it is tiring. Um, when people have said, I've just seen dogs walking next to somebody in a wheelchair and I don't really know what they do. Mm-hmm. And then we show them what the dogs do. They're, they're blown away at the skills that the dogs have. I was working with a dog yesterday. Um, I like all of our dogs. So I always say, I love this dog, but one of my other trainers say, you love all the dogs. <laughs> it's true. So anyway, he was, I was playing a game where I was going from a chair and then having him go under a chair as we would in a restaurant, you know, under the table. And I was dropping the cane that I was using. And then I'd have him get the cane and bring it to me so I could go to the next chair and do the same thing. So we were doing a round robin type of game. And after two times, he brought the cane to me, but he, he wouldn't give it to me until he had propped it upright for me. Oh, and I, and I, I thought, you know, I think he did that on purpose. So he did it twice and I think he did it on purpose, but I'm going to next week, I'm going to work with him and see if he does it again. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's thinking. Right. That's very, I was going to say, that's very smart. Yeah. And it's that's like, that's how we train them. We want them to problem solve. I was going to say, he was kind of training you. It sounds like now don't drop this again, mom. Yeah. Don't <laughs> drop it again. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most important lesson your organization has taught you? I think um, part of it is to trust, to s- certainly set, set my goals and have my priorities and then let it go you know follow up with action and then let it go because if I've been concerned about finding the right match for a dog that of course I think is terrific and would be played could be good in a number of different situations and something doesn't work out I have to trust that the right person will show up and they always have for that placement that, that's a tough one for me too, because I'm a doer, not a, not a sit back and let things happen to me kind of person. Sure. No, I can relate very much. 
What's the most important thing you've learned in your life in general? I've had a pretty long life. So gosh, I don't know. In life in general, I think I think it's really important to understand that things aren't just going to fall in my lap. They have sometimes, and I've taken taken the opportunity when it arises. But if there's something I want, which is often, if I want I want a lifestyle or I want an outcome, then I have to figure out how I'm going to make that happen and take one step at a time and not worry about the big picture and getting overwhelmed with everything that has to happen in order for me. I'm talking about an achievement, for example, in order for me to achieve something, just take one step, map it out, be ready to adapt and adjust if I need to and um, stay focused on it and just let it fall into place with a lot of work on my part. Sure. No, I love that. That's a great, both of those are great lessons. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> good. What is the biggest surprise canine partners had during 2020 dealing with the pandemic? Well, I think for everybody that stay at home order, uh, I have a friend who calls it the smackdown where everybody had to stay at home um, because what we do is very physical. Mm. You know, we, we, our dogs are raised by volunteers in their homes and they go to school and they go to work. And these, we had just received three puppies from another school and they couldn't have any socialization mm. and get out in the world at a very critical period in their development. So, so we set up some virtual classes and some coaching sessions and got in touch with all of our clients to see if they were safe, if there was anything we could do for them, if we could pick up dog food and drop it off, pick up groceries, walk the dogs. So we reached out to our volunteers and asked if the, anyone would be able to go get some dogs and take them, service dogs and take them for walks. That didn't, that doesn't, didn't surprise me. It was just a, a major adjustment or the term pivot into now providing support as, as opposed to developing, it's a harsh word, but a product, which is a service dog. What are the biggest things you're looking forward to in the coming year to expand your organization or change or um, adapt to the new normal that we see? We're not quite sure what that looks like yet, as nobody is, but we're, we're suspecting it's going to be a hybrid type of situation. Um, we have volunteers with our dogs who are older, retired, who aren't comfortable coming to class with the dogs, so we're moving dogs around. Um, we're probably going to be doing that more frequently, <clears throat> you know, like taking a dog from a pup, puppy raiser who's had the dog for a year and moving the puppy to another home or a teacher who could take the dog to school mm. to sort of mix up the experiences and then then they can go back to the puppy raiser so we're looking at doing more of that and bringing on more you know the director of operations director of business operations and trainers we we have to bring on more trainers and we have to have somebody who can manage the business to allow the canine operations to flourish. What is the best way for our listeners to support canine partners? Well, we're always looking for volunteers. We, we do, as I said, we have volunteer puppy raisers and puppy sitters, but the funding is our major roadblock in any situation because we couldn't have any in-person events. We did do some virtual events. We're going to do a virtual event in conjunction with the Iditarod. So we're getting that going and we're going to be sending out, um, you know, emails about that. Re expanding our community is really important to us. So um, more people know about us and what we do. And then of course, the funding for what we do, because we can only do that it's, it's pretty amazing. It's a crazy business model. Nonprofit is. And ours is especially crazy because it costs us so much to raise and train a single dog. And yet we don't make a profit on it. We don't even break even on it. 
when we have things like a virtual event or hopefully we can have an in-person event later in the summer or in the fall. That's what, that's what we hope to be able to do, but we do those just to get the word out about us. So telling people about us, learning more about Canine Partners of the Rockies, supporting through individual donations. We're starting a, a, another, we're starting to look at our volunteer capabilities too, because people call to see if they can volunteer, but they can't raise a puppy, but there are other ways they can help with transporting dogs, for example, or helping with the events and um, helping with some administrative tasks as well. Excellent. And just so our listeners kind of have an idea, I'm glad you brought up the cost of raising service dogs, raising and training them. What on average is the cost for raising and training one service dog? I know that because I came from the IT world. And so I, I studied it for four years. I did four years of data collection when I first came because I had heard what the cost was and I couldn't believe it. To raise and train a single service dog without volunteers is $63,000 for a single through placement. And then with volunteers, our volunteers raising our puppies and coming to class, we provide professional you know, training and coaching for them. But if we had to have professionals do that instead of volunteers, it would cost $63,000. So our hard cost with the volunteers is 20, 25,000, 26,000 for each dog placed. No, that's great. I mean, I've heard, I've heard a wide variety of numbers, anywhere from 50 to a hundred thousand, just depending on kind of the needs of the person and the abilities of the dog. Mm -hmm. And sometimes too, the cost, you start training one dog and then it turns out that puppy isn't really meant to be a service dog. So that can sometimes up the cost as well. I've heard. Right. Well, that, and that was just, I was just looking at not a specific dog, but, but data from our volunteers and from our expenses, of course, assuming the dog makes it as a service dog, a single dog, not, not, I wasn't even looking at out of 10 puppies, five puppies are placed as service dogs. And what was the cost to all of all those, of those five other puppies? Sure. Single dog. No, no. And I appreciate the breakdown because I think that helps our listeners know just how important funding is for this kind of light. I mean, it's really a life-saving mission to help someone with a disability. And training is skilled. It's not, it's not like it used to be in the old days, you know, where you just teach the dog to sit and lie down. Our training method is based on science and cognitive behavior. And so our trainers need to be knowledgeable about that. And they need to have good timing, good, great. They need to have great skills so that these dogs can be successful. And our success rate is very, very high in the industry. Generally out of a litter of puppy, you would, you would hope to place 50% of them as service dogs. And we start tracking from the time the puppy's eight weeks old and out of all of the dogs that we have, we have a 98% success rate Wow! in a working in a service dog career, some kind of service or facility assistance dog career. When we release a dog for whatever reason, um, we, we hope to release the dog into a working career because our dogs are from working lines. They want to work. They want to think. So they're not usually that happy as sitting around doing nothing, they get into trouble. So mm-hmm. we look for another working career for them. And if, you know, if it's a health issue, for example, and they can't have a, an active working career like search and rescue, then we will go to the puppy raiser and see if they want to adopt the dog. And then we also get applications from people who want to adopt service dogs that don't make it. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That sounds like it's a You guys work really hard to give a happy ending to everybody. We try. (laughs) So what is the best way for our listeners to find you? Social media, website, where should they go? Uh, Canine Partners of the Rockies.org. 
active Facebook page, active Facebook community. We are also on Instagram. The Facebook is more active because we can post more on our videos and things like that on Facebook. And what's one thing you would like our audience to know that I haven't thought to ask you? Well, you've asked really good questions. I hope they've gained an understanding of how much work is involved in placing a service dog with somebody and what the rewards are for somebody. Because it truly, you know, when I say that it changes lives, it does. It, it absolutely does. And we have had clients who's, who have said that their lives have been saved by their service dog. Mm literally saved by their service dog. And so, and these people now can, they're in the workforce, they're part of our community, they're contributing um, in ways that uh, they certainly before their accident, they never would have imagined they'd be contributing. Um, the children on autism with on the autism spectrum who have the support of a service dog parents are feeling feel so much safer because now they can go places with the family because that dog is there to anchor the child or help support the child so it's it it is truly life-changing that's incredible i love it well angela thank you very much for your time this morning i really appreciate it this was very informative and educational and i know i learned a lot i'm sure our listeners did too so thank you very much Thank you. I really had a lot of fun, Christina. Good. I'm glad. That was such an inspiring interview. I learned so much and I hope you did too. If you were moved as much as I was and want to support this amazing organization, please visit my website at theanimallawfirm.com and check out our merch page or follow the links to donate to this organization directly. All profits from merchandise sold on my website go to support the guests on my show. If you want to support the podcast, please share us on social media and give us a five-star review. It really does help. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, my fellow underdogs.